We are continuing in our series this morning that we've been in for the last few weeks that we're calling Deeply Formed. And basically what we're doing during the spring and summer, these few months, is we're, we're sort of asking the question of what kind of life is God calling us to live in light of the days we find ourselves. As we are emerging from the fog, the, the isolation, you know, the season of sort of division and anger and everything else that we have been in for the last 18 months or so, the questions that we are asking is what, what kind of life is God inviting us to reconstruct? What are the kind of things that we need to hold on to? And what are the things from the former days that we need to let go of? Is the pace that we were living at before the pandemic, was that a healthy and sustainable pace? Or would God call us to let go of some things and build new rhythms as we, as we sort of reconstruct? So that's what we're doing this whole summer. And today we're going to be talking about inclusive community. How can we move toward our neighbor rather than retreat to our bubble? As we said a couple of weeks ago, uh, at the beginning of 2020, a lot of people out in the culture and prophetic voices in sort of the church culture were talking about how 2020 was going to be a year of 2020 vision. It was going to be a year where we see everything. We're going to, we're going to cast all this vision. None of them knew what was coming, so I don't know how good their vision really was. But what we found is that 2020 was actually a great revealer. It sort of uncovered things that were buried down in the hearts of people and at the foundation even of our entire society. So over the course of that year, most of us found that there was a lot of junk in our lives. There was buried anger and cracks in our, relationship, in our relationships, even idolatry and, and things that we, had, that we put too much of our hope in. And then we discovered that, that our nation is even more polarized than we had ever imagined. So much so that depending on what your sort of information source is, it might feel like people live in entirely different universes. And so last year was really a year of near constant conflict and argument. Opinions about mask wearing, about the election, remember that? That happened? about issues of race following the, the murder of George Floyd, about riots and destruction in Portland and Seattle. And, and as humans, the more tense things got, the more conflict that arose, the more it tended to push us away from people with whom we disagreed and pushing us toward people who we agree with on everything. And so... And so as, as this happened, we saw that the barriers between people got taller and more rigid, and we started retreating into our silos and our echo chambers where we were comfortably among our people. And there's a psychological ease in being surrounded by people who are all like you. It is really like the warm bath, especially when everything else feels chaotic. It is the path of least resistance. But what happens when you discover that the people that you have historically most identified yourself with don't actually have the same opinion as you about something, or they don't listen to or read the same sources that you do? What happens when you discover that your family members are on the other side of an issue? What do you do when you discover that your church might have a different take on something than your particular opinion? 
And sadly, over the last year, we've discovered that often people will distance themselves from loved ones over an issue rather than loving one another despite disagreements. I recently heard someone say, I've heard people changing their church over politics, but I've never heard of anyone changing their politics because of their church. Just a thought. Theologian Miroslav Volf, he says that our entire culture has been constructed on, quote, the persistent practice of exclusion. That we have increasingly defined ourselves by what we're not and who we are against. And when we fall into the trap of othering someone else, uh, we go through a process of exclusion. The first step, first we seek to eliminate unwanted others from our circle of friends. But if we can't remove them, then we seek to assimilate them. We try to convert them so that they are more and more like us and less and less like the other. But if that doesn't work, then we try to dominate them. We try to make the culture sort of surrounding us and, and, and our, in our circle a place that is really uncomfortable for anyone who has sort of a differing view. And, again, and then if we, if we can't dominate them, then finally we turn to demonization. We remove their humanity so we can justify our thinking and our behavior. Now the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, he writes, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And when we forget that there is a spiritual evil at work in the world, what we'll do is we'll turn other people into our enemies. In his book, uh, Beautiful Resistance, John Tyson writes it like this. He says, Christians with a Satanless gospel will project the anger that should be reserved for Lucifer onto other social groups. If you do not have Satan in your theology, you will find somebody else to be your Satan. That's, that's how we work as humans. That's what we do. And, and we've, we've seen that happen so aggressively over the last year. But the way of Jesus demands that we renounce this way of the world, the way that divides us into these tribes and the way that excludes. The way of Jesus is a way of radical inclusion. It's the way of extravagant welcome. In our community, inclusion must resist exclusion because this is not a peripheral issue for us as Christians. It is actually a core gospel demand. About a year ago, our nation was reeling from the videoed murder of George Floyd. You guys remember that? And it, was, it just felt like everything was dialed up to just the hottest boiling point possible. And as a leadership team, we were in constant prayer about how God would have us as a church respond to the moment. And as we were having conversations with lots of people in the church, one of the, one of the, um, the common refrains that we heard from people was that we shouldn't talk about this at all. We should just preach the gospel, which is great. I'm all for that. The problem is that that really depends on what you mean by the word gospel. In Ephesians chapter 2, one of the most beautiful reflections of the good news that Christians hold to, the, the most beautiful description of what it is that as Christians we believe, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, as for you... 
You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. <clears throat> also, oh, sorry, excuse me. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I mean, come on. Like, that's powerful. It was way too much to catch all of it, right? But it's just like good news after good news after good news that we were dead in our sins, that we were following the way of the world, we were even deserving of judgment. But because God loved us so much, he made us alive with Christ and seated us with him. By his grace, we're restored into right relationship with God because of Jesus' finished work on the cross. That is the gospel. That is the good news. Hallelujah. But Ephesians 2 doesn't stop there. His, his reflection this beautiful hymn about this good news that we hold to, it keeps going. And look with me at the next verse. It says, Therefore, meaning in light of everything I just said, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. That was like a fire hydrant of theology being blasted in your face. So if you only caught like maybe one sentence of that, like you did good. It's okay. Basically, what we're seeing right here 
is that the gospel is so much bigger, it is so much more holistic than punching your ticket to heaven because you believe the right things. It's way more than merely a theology of atonement. When the gospel is stripped down to individual salvation, it's actually not... It's actually not what Jesus described as the good news of his kingdom that, that was and has come and is at hand now. You see, the gospel is the story and victory of Jesus, the risen Christ who is seated on the throne. He is our hope. And the victory of Jesus has specific purposes for the healing of our personal souls and for this broken world. Jesus came and was victorious, not just over our sin, but also over every evil, over every disease, over every plague, over every system, over every injustice. Theologian George Eldon Ladd wrote this in his profound book, The Gospel of the Kingdom. It's a classic. He writes, the gospel must not only offer a personal salvation in the future life to those who believe, it must also transform all of the relationships of life here and now and thus cause the kingdom of God to prevail in all the world. Amen. And that's a story that I can get behind. That is something that really gets me fired up and excited. You see, God is reconciling all of those who were once separated by sin, separated from the people of God and his promises, separated from relationship with God, and separated from each other. And by the work that he accomplished on the cross, he is creating in himself one new humanity. He's making a new family. God saves people, and he transforms their lives for a purpose— He brings us together for the purpose of creating local, multi-ethnic churches that function as communities of reconciliation and unity, of justice and righteousness in our community. And that, my friends, if you are new to Vancouver Vineyard Church, that is our vision for this church. God has called us to be a diverse community of hope realizing the power of the cross to reconcile all things that have been broken and separated by sin, all relationships that have been separated, all people groups, all systems, all everything. We are people who are called to bring reconciliation. And we get this from looking at the life and the passion and the teachings of Jesus, who consistently modeled this in his life and his ministry. Jesus came to a specific people in a specific context. So we can't just like take his words and sort of read them in a vacuum. We have to understand them in light of the time and place that he lived. He was a first century Jewish man. And though the Jews had contentious relationships with all kinds of groups all around them, there was no people that they despised more than a group called the Samaritans. How many of you have heard of the Samaritans before? See, hundreds of years before Jesus... The Babylonians had come in, they conquered Israel, they destroyed Jerusalem, and they sent the people of Israel out into exile. And Samaritans were the Israelites, um, they were the Israelites who basically intermarried with foreign people, while Jews maintained a strong cultural identity and didn't mix with others. And so as a result, Jews looked at Samaritans as half-breeds, as impure as those who had compromised against the word of God. 
But Jesus demonstrated a completely different way. When he looked at his countrymen all around him who hated and resisted and rejected Samaritans, and Samaritans did the same to the Jews, Jesus demonstrates a whole other way. In John chapter 5, we read a story about how Jesus was on a journey, and the text says that he had to go through Samaria. He was like being forced to go through Samaria. What a strange sentence that was. Because Jesus didn't have to go anywhere, right? Like Jesus could walk on water to avoid, you know, he could take whatever path he wanted to. We see instances where Jesus disappears and reappears somewhere. Like Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria if he didn't want to. And no good Jew would go through Samaria. In fact, common practice for Jewish people would be to add multiple days to their journey just to avoid setting foot in Samaritan land. But Jesus, he travels through Samaria and he finds himself sitting next to a well in the middle of the day and he engages in conversation with a woman who had a bad reputation, a Samaritan woman. This was a woman who was likely the victim of an abusive system who had been divorced multiple times by multiple men in the first century. And Jesus, in engaging her and tenderly talking to her, he crosses every ethnic, gender, and social barrier to look her in the eye and demonstrate that the love of God is extended to her, that the Father sees her even at this well. And this, my friends, was scandalous. This was unheard of. And most shockingly of all, when you consider the actual, um, the, the sequence of events that we read in the Gospels, that this woman at the well became the very first person in human history to hear the good news that Jesus was the Messiah. She is the first person Jesus reveals his identity to. And she was the ethnic enemy. She was the other And throughout the rest of Jesus' ministry, he continued to build on this theme. This wasn't a one-off thing. And he scandalized people by talking about the reconciling work of God and referring to these hated, half-breed Samaritan people as his neighbor. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells the story, a famous story of a good Samaritan. Let's read it together. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life. What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And, when, and then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expenses you have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law. Look at that, expert in the law. 
replied the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This man's an expert in the law. If there's somebody who should know the very simple basics of kingdom ethics, it would be this man, right? This is a famous and beautiful story, one that I'm sure most of us have heard dozens of times. And when you read this story, do you know what the interpretive key to the entire text is? It's found in verse 29. This is the verse that unlocks everything that we need to know about this this particular story. In verse 29, it says, but he, the expert in the law, wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You see, the teacher of the law, he wanted to test Jesus and to see how far this kingdom ethic would go. Yeah, Jesus, I'm with you. We should love God, and we should love our neighbor. But in order to justify the way that I feel about other people, I'm going to ask you, you know, who is actually my neighbor? Seeking to justify his othering, his exclusion of other people, he asks, but who's my real neighbor, Jesus? And Jesus, demonstrating the way of the kingdom, the new humanity that is being reconciled in himself, he tells this story of a man who was on a journey and fell among robbers, was beaten, stripped, and left for dead, and who was then ignored or rejected by all of the religious elite people who were from his own culture. But instead, a Samaritan, the ethnic other, the enemy, had compassion on him. And that the Samaritan, I mean, every time Jesus used the word Samaritan, you could feel the crowd like bristle, like not that guy. Like you can come up with a better story, Jesus, than that. The Samaritan was the one who was living the kingdom through reconciling and sacrificial sacrificial serving of his ethnic and social enemy. How many of us want to justify ourselves rather than sacrificially serving and loving our neighbors, those who are outside of our circle? And we do this in a dozen ways. We get so caught up in our own lives and our own busyness and it's just everything is tough and I I just need a little bit of me time and we tend to just kind of get wrapped up in our own comfort and our own security or we justify our lack of compassion as just like, you know, we're good people, you know, we're not doing anything wrong, we're not hurting anybody or we can get wrapped around the axle over complex social and public policy concerns and we fail to hear the pain in people who are right here in our community. We can get caught up in a cause and miss the people bleeding right in front of us. As a pastor, my deep concern is that our current political and media climate is dividing the church and frankly derailing the mission. We are defaulting to worldly talking points without really having a biblical understanding of these complicated areas. And as a result, the voice of Jesus is frequently being drowned out by a cacophony of fear. If the moment when we start talking about justice, righteousness in our neighborhood, if in the moment that we start talking about God's call and invitation for us to be a multi-ethnic church pursuing racial reconciliation and sacrificially loving our diverse neighborhood, if that immediately triggers talking points about Black Lives Matter or critical race theory or Marxism, let me lovingly say, like, it's just not the conversation we're having. Like, that's not really what this whole thing is about. And I'm not saying that I agree with any of those things. 
I'm simply saying that right now, rather than getting wrapped up in fear, and it could be about a million other issues. It doesn't just have to be racial reconciliation. It could be about the poor. It can be about, um, it could be about abortion and a million. I'm, I'm hitting all of the things right now. Sorry, I'll back up a little bit. We need to stop getting wrapped up in fear and instead go hard after loving our neighbor. Amen? I'm pretty sure I'm going to get some emails this week. So please send them to john at seattlevineyard.com. Be great. He'll take all of your concerns. The way of Jesus calls us to move toward our neighbors. He calls us to love those who are outside of our normal bubble. He calls us to a key practice that is core to the life of every follower of Jesus, a key practice that alone, I think, has the power to resist fear, which is the practice of hospitality. The Greek word for hospitality is the word philoxenia, and it's a combination of two two roots. The first one is philo, philo, um, and it means friend or brotherly love, and then the word xenos, which means stranger or foreigner. You know, so you would hear like Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. You might hear the word xenos, like xenophobia, which is fear of the stranger. But what we see here is the opposite of xenophobia. We see philoxenia, which is literally the, the meaning of this, of biblical hospitality, is the love for the stranger or friendship with the foreigner. It's a relationship with the outsider. And this perfectly captures the heart of the gospel that God extended his love and his welcome to us when we were strangers, when we were estranged from him. And, and then God, he actually commands his people from the very beginning, back in the Torah, in the Old Testament, he roots the call to be hospitable in the fact that the people of God had experienced being the other at one point as well. In Exodus 22, he says, do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner for you were foreigners in Egypt. And then Jesus demonstrates this life of radical hospitality, welcoming those who were all considered outsiders in Jewish society. I mean, he was getting in trouble all the time because he was eating with people like tax collectors and prostitutes. And he was spending time with lepers and people who had chronic illness and pain. He associated with Roman soldiers who everybody hated. He just He devoted himself to being proximate to the poor. He talked well to and of Samaritans. You see, hospitality was Jesus' strategy to change the world. That's not an overstatement. When you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus' strategy for demonstrating the kingdom of God was radical welcome inclusion around a dinner table. Unlike our culture's framework of hospitality where we invite people who are just like us to eat food that we all agree is really good. We all have the same sense of favorite decor. You know, right now we're going to get the string lights out. We'll have the outdoor table and the charcuterie board out and whatever else. Jesus actually demonstrates a totally different type of hospitality, one that was scandalously diverse. He was committed to being with anyone who would have him. And Jesus' way of hospitality was actually amazing because not only was he committed to to being with other people, he actually invited himself over to their house. He was like, oh, I'm so committed to hospitality. I'm going to have you make me dinner. And then I'm going to love you. 
And Jesus calls the church to represent him in the world in the exact same way. The church isn't meant to be a place where we hide from the world, but is actually meant to be a place that is a hope for the world. The church is called to be the sacrificial haven for the outcast and the wanderer, for those who are the outsider or the other. A number of years ago in this church, when we were uh, still meeting in schools, we were looking for a building where we, would, where we would have a place to call home. And there were prophetic people in our church who were praying and asking God, so, okay, what is the, what is the vision? What, God, where do you want to plant us so that we can know that we belong in that neighborhood, in that specific place? And while they were praying, they started to hear words about how we were to share in the heritage of Fort Vancouver and Dr. McLaughlin. And the, the calling that God has for this church is that we would be a refuge in the wilderness for the wanderer, for the spiritual wanderers, and that we were called to invite them into the table and to come and feast and feel like they belonged. I love that I came to this church, you know, after all of those words and I, and were spoken, and I came into this church as a little bit of a wanderer and was welcomed in. And then experience the, the incredible beauty of this identity of being a refuge in the wilderness. In his book, The Divine Commodity, Sky Jathani writes this. He says, the English word hospitality originates from the same Latin root as the word hospital. A hospital is literally a home for strangers. Of course, it has come to mean a place of healing. And there is a link between being welcomed and being healed. Our homes are to be hospitals, refuges of healing, radiating the light of heaven. And our dinner tables are to be operating tables, the place where broken souls are made whole again. When we lower our defenses, when we remove our facades and our peepholes, and when we begin to be truly present with one another, then the healing power of the gospel can begin its work. Consider how powerful your welcome somebody to a dinner table can be. And consider how simple it is that opening up your life to another person can be so transformative. Here, my friends, is a compelling vision for the life that God is calling us to reconstruct, one of openness and welcome, one that creates space for enemies to become neighbors and for neighbors to become friends. This is what Jesus did for you. This is what Jesus did for all of us. And this is what Jesus calls us to do for others. Jesus calls us to join him in his work of breaking down every wall of hostility and then to stay there, to not move on. When Jesus ministered to this woman at the well, he didn't just preach the gospel to her and then bounce to the next town because he had too much work to do. It says that the people from the town rushed out to meet him and they compelled him to stay and he stayed for multiple days and then he shared this news with everybody and it says that many of them became followers of Jesus as a result of him lingering in the place of conflict. The challenge is that for us, for the church, the pull will always be toward the inside, to our comfort. The challenge for you is that your heart will always be pulled to those you already know and with those, those with whom you are already comfortable, who are just like you. And you and I need to learn how to resist and fight against gravity. 
We have to resist the current of the world in order to be people who, to be with people who are not like you. Because inclusion must resist exclusion. And this is the work that we are committed to doing in our church, no matter how small or weak it may look. We have a vision. We are committed to it, to become the multi-ethnic people of God, always reaching outward to our community with the hope of the gospel. We want to be reconcilers in a world that is torn apart by sin. And my invitation to you is to join us. I think it's a really compelling vision, and I'm really excited to do it. And I think that you guys should come along with us. We should do this together. So as we close, a couple of questions I want to ask, just things for you to ponder. Who do you know who is different enough from you that you feel uncomfortable with them? Who are the people that you have been estranged from due to your ethnicity, your politics, your income? And who would God call you to make room for at your table so that you can begin today practicing the work of being a reconciler, a peacemaker? Maybe it's knocking on the door of the elderly person who lives across the street from you to see if they need help with anything or if they're lonely. Maybe it's not going to your favorite restaurant that you go to all, all the time, but it's instead going to a different neighborhood and patronizing the, the restaurant that's owned by somebody who doesn't look or speak like you. Maybe it's staying, like getting out of the rut of sitting in the same pew week after week after week and instead paying attention to who is a person that looks like I can, they need a welcome that I can go sit with. Maybe it's having a coffee or a beer with somebody who votes different than you. That would change the world. Imagine. You see, as a, as a church, we care about the big structural issues because God does. When you read Ephesians 6 about how we don't fight just against flesh and blood, but against structures and systems and powers and principalities and authorities and rulers, like that's not just merely some kind of like weird demonic hierarchy, but there is a theology that I actually believe is very accurate that a lot of these systems and structures and things that work against people are demonically inspired. And we can't be afraid of talking about that. We have to confront it as the church. And we care about people. Because Jesus does. And here's the good news, guys. We can do both at the same time. So let's do this together. Let's join Jesus in his mission, loving each other and loving those who are outside, welcoming them to the table as family. Amen?